So hello there and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be chatting to Brenda Leong. Brenda is Senior Counsel and Director of Artificial Intelligence and Ethics at the Future of Privacy Forum. She oversees the strategic planning of organizational goals, as well as managing the Future of Privacy Forum portfolio on biometrics, particularly facial recognition, along with the ethics and privacy issues associated with artificial intelligence. She authored the Freedom, sorry, the Future of Privacy Forum's Expert's Guide to AI and co-authored the paper Beyond Explainability, A Practical Guide to Managing Risk in Machine Learning Models. Prior to working at the Future of Privacy Forum, Brenda served in the U.S. Air Force, and this included legislative and policy affairs work at the Pentagon and the U.S. Department of State. So in this conversation, myself and Brenda discuss some of the ethical and legal and social issues that arise from the use of facial recognition technology. This is actually an episode that I wanted to do for quite some time, and I thought Brenda was the ideal guide to this thorny topic. So although Brenda is very much alive to the risks and concerns associated with the use of facial recognition technology, I think you'll see from the conversation that I have with her that she takes a somewhat nuanced perspective on how we should address those risks. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and as per usual, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, spread the word, review it on Apple or Spotify or any other service where you can rate and review because that will help to further grow the audience for this podcast. Without further ado, I'm just going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Brenda. Okay, so Brenda, today we're going to talk about facial recognition technology. Now, at the time that we're talking, the coronavirus, and I guess maybe the US presidential election is dominating the news cycle. But it certainly seems like facial recognition technology has seen its fair share of both media and popular attention in the past 12 months from the treatment of the Uyghur people in China to the various campaigns to ban its use amongst law enforcement agencies in the US, there seems to be a heightened sensitivity to the risks associated with both the pervasive and invasive uses of this technology. This is all compounded, of course, by the fact that many of us seem to embrace its conveniences in our daily lives, using it to unlock our smartphones every few minutes. And this is something that I do myself on a regular basis. So given your expertise in the area of privacy law and policy, I thought you'd be an ideal person to discuss this topic with. So let me just start with the obvious question here, which is just what is facial recognition technology? Thanks, John, and thanks for having me uh, today to discuss this. really appreciate the chance to go into some of the detail here. Um, as you say, a very timely and interesting issue that's getting a lot of attention. So uh, I think one of the things we're going to explore more as we talk is that facial recognition as a term is being used to encompass a lot of things right now. So to start, as you say, with the basics, uh, I think what most people think of, and I think the most common use in the media is facial recognition, where you're attempting to identify somebody by comparing two images. So either comparing their live face or as perceived by a camera or a photo of them, scanning that using an algorithmically based software program that creates a template and then compares that template to something that's been in previously enrolled in a database of some kind and see if you can find a match. So there's a lot of detail to that. I think we'll talk about more of that in a minute. Uh, but that is the basics of facial recognition is it's a software program designed to match two images 
uh, and see if you can either identify a person or verify their their um, who they are. Yeah, what's some of the history behind this? I mean, the basic idea or principle has been around for quite some time, right? But there there has also been, I guess, a recent explosion of interest in it and, I guess, prominence of it. I mean, what what's the history and why the recent explosion? Well, I think, um, you know, obviously the ability to identify people is just sort of intrinsic in our engagements with each other and in the same way that we've had fingerprint uh, technology for over 100 years or, you know, more. Um, and the fact that we have um, people manually trying to recognize someone based on their face is is just part of an increasingly complex world, social fabric, whatever. Um, passports were actually not a standard issue item until sometime around World War One or just post-World War One, and they didn't initially have photos on them. And adding photos to passports was actually a very contentious step that received a lot of ang- or caused a lot of angst and received a lot of pushback um, before it really became a standard thing as as people felt themselves sort of being turned into you know something that was that was representing them based on their looks or their face or their description uh, in a way that seemed very depersonalized or objectified or something like that. So so even before we applied technology to it. This idea of identifying each other by our faces is is very emotionally tied to our interactions as people. Um, I think what we're seeing now, of course, is that we have technologies that can do this or attempt to do this in ways that put it at scale um, and add it into interactions that we have in ways that were not previously possible. And so that brings up those same emotional connections to the role of, of our face as part of our sense of self and identity and to how that plays into our interactions as people in society and what is the right way to handle that that's you know respectful of our human dignity as well as potentially being a useful tool for for security um, or other convenience purposes. Yes, I mean, I suppose I hadn't really drawn the obvious connection here, but now that you mentioned it, it, it makes sense, which is you know, the, the original facial recognition technology is the human brain and we're kind of well adapted to recognize faces it's one of the things that we're particularly good at so as you say that there's a a very long history to this idea of facial recognition of being important now in a or a soon-to-be-published article with um evan selinger who's a former guest on this show which you kindly shared with me in advance you you identify a range of different technologies that can be grouped under the label facial recognition and i guess sometimes there's a tendency to conflate these things and um, fail to appreciate the distinctions between them. So maybe we could talk about those different manifestations or forms of facial recognition technology that are out there. Sure, absolutely. That's that's usually what I find very helpful as a sort of a starting point in this conversation with people. Um, you'll notice when I gave the basic description at the beginning, I said it's it's intrinsically a comparison of two images. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because a couple of the technologies that are frequently lumped under facial recognition or considered to be facial recognition are not actually that. They're just the evaluation of a single image. So that might be facial detection, like when your camera uh, puts little yellow squares around the faces in the photo to help you focus or some kind of camera that's focused on an entrance to a public place is just counting the number of people that are coming in. That's not doing any comparison. That's not taking an image and, and trying to match it or identify it. 
It's literally just identifying that there's a person there or not a person there. Similarly, we're starting to see a lot of technologies now that will take an image of a person and then try to evaluate it either on the spot or after the fact for uh, characterization purposes. So it might be emotion detection, or it might be for advertising purposes to determine, did the people who stood in this spot in a store or in front of an active billboard, were they more likely to be men or women? Were they older or younger? Were they families in groups or were they single people standing alone? Um, And some of that is probably useful information, but it gets into some very troublesome areas when the characterization study of those images gets into that emotional or interpretive uh, aspects and starts to make assumptions or conclusions that may not really be based in science or well-founded in any kind of reliability to cross um, cultures, races, genders, and things like that to make those sort of conclusions from it. But but again, those are those are interpretations of a single image. So facial recognition most properly should be considered the the final two um, applications, which is either verification or identification. Verification is a one-to-one match. That's like what you do when you open your phone, um, or perhaps somebody uses uh, facial recognition as part of access to their work location or to some other public um, uh, parking garage, perhaps, or something like that. And that's where you're asserting that you're a person and the system is verifying that you are, in fact, that person. You know that you've been enrolled in that system and you are asking that system to verify your identity in that moment. Um, most of us have encountered that in some form or fashion, even if it's only on our personal device. And people tend to be not quite as discomfited by that, although these are all related. So it's it's sometimes hard to say one would be okay and another not. Um, but in general, that seems to not generate quite as much concern. Then there's the sort of ultimate, what we see in the news, what we think about when we talk about law enforcement or border controls or things like that, which is identification, which is where you take an image that is unknown to you and try to identify it. Who is this person? And so you use the software to create the template and you match it against whatever database you have access to. Potentially that's driver's license photos. Uh, If you're an online photo storage company, that might be the other photos in your albums that you've collected. If you are the FBI, it's a criminal database. So it has to be matched against an existing database And that is, again, where some of the concerns come up with uh, companies like Clearview AI, which has received a lot of attention recently, which has a what they call a commercially available database. That is, you can subscribe to get access to their database, which they claim has something like three billion people in it that they've scraped from the web broadly and theoretically could identify uh, a submitted image against that database to try to find a match. So. So that's kind of the spectrum all the way from just identifying that a person, a human is present up to identifying an unknown individual by an image taken in some form or fashion and matched against a database uh, that the searcher has uh, has access to. Yeah, I guess I I find, I suppose, that way of kind of laying out the different types interesting insofar as, I, I suppose, if I were to arrange them on a spectrum, I'd probably go from like detection, knowing that a face is present to verification and identification and then i probably think of this idea of interpretation or characterization as maybe the the more extreme manifestation of the technology although i get your point that it's not necessarily comparing two images it it's uh, trying to i guess make predictions or make inferences about somebody's emotional 
or mental state in some way, which is, as you say, problematic. But I, I, I think I would view that as the probably the more worrisome and extreme manifestation of, of this technology. Yeah, I would, I would, um, I, I understand that that description of it and and your feelings about it. I think um, when we originally created some of our our resources and materials about this, we had characterization much lower on the spectrum, sort of next up from detection, but still down from verification or identification. And the reason for that is because it doesn't theoretically or technically include any PII. That is, it's not actually needing to verify who the person is. You can do this interpretive process on a photo without ever figuring out who the person in the photo is or without ever needing to necessarily, depending on what the point of, of the data collection you're engaged in is serving. So in that case, we were a couple of years ago thinking about this as something that was sort of the equivalent that you could see with the naked eye. In other words, if I had uh, you know, a marketing assistant or something who I wanted to pay to sit in the store and pay attention to who came in and how long they stayed and where they walked, we were thinking it was more the equivalent of the kind of thing that person would see. They would probably make a rough judgment about um, you know, height and they wear glasses or they don't, they're a man or a woman and, uh, you know, maybe some age approximations, things like that. And so it didn't seem terribly concerning at that point. But I think what we've seen since then is first of all, a better understanding that some of those categories are not as clear, um, and as, as fair to, to judge based on a person's, uh, appearance, um, in terms of gender and, and sexuality and things like that, but also that we've seen technology now trying to add levels of interpretation to that that do get into this sort of inference about um, preferences or emotional states or responsiveness to certain stimuli in the advertisement or, or the situation. And that becomes much more concerning um, in that case. And, and, and I think that's what makes you feel, and, and I would agree, makes this sort of its own new category of concern now, that where even if the person isn't identified as an individual, if, if they're interacting with a system that is in some way providing opportunities or, or you know, just making inferences about them in whatever way, and that data is then being used, it's very concerning to know that that data may, may not be accurate. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I sometimes I think of certain forms of those applications as being more akin to like you know lie detection or any anything that's trying to make these inferences based on either behavior or external patterns to some kind of mental state as opposed to just more straightforward or allegedly straightforward verification and identification. But I don't want to get um, too bogged down in that thing. Now, I mentioned in the introduction there that this technology is pervasive now i mean is that actually a fair assessment what are some of the applications that are out there at the moment it it is very very common um pervasive i guess depends on your point of view and and how pervasive it is to be pervasive but certainly it's on many if if not a large percentage of devices now it's on you know any iphone sold or used from the last couple years which is a lot Um, it's on a great many laptops or computer systems um, either now by design through some of them or can certainly be added as a feature. Um, and it is available in many uh, um, security systems and access points. Biometrics generally and facial recognition in particular are being incorporated into facility access, uh, things like that. It is also used very much in our online um, services 
we can, uh, you know, we can search our own photos and uh, create albums and do all kinds of matching. We can do tagging of friends on social media. All of that is based on on facial recognition. And then, of course, you know, it is used forensically in law enforcement, um, potentially to to search after the fact to try to identify people off of like CCTV feeds or video security video, um, probably not incorporated into that as a live feature very often, but it's certainly available as a as a forensic tool to try to identify people after the fact. So um, and then the the hospitality industry generally things like uh, major sports arenas or uh, venues, concert venues, things like that are are seeking to incorporate it um, both for security and access, but also for services and customized experiences for people. Maybe that's your VIP pass to certain restricted areas, or maybe that's how you access um, opportunities and features uh, that you've been given access to um, hotels and conferences either are experimenting with it or have, have talked about wanting to do it in terms of making a very frictionless um, entry point so that you could, you know, get your rental car, drive to your hotel, walk in, be scanned, get your room number and your info and everything all without needing to wait in a line uh, or necessarily interact directly in some way if, if that's a feature that you chose um, and, and make that very seamless for you as a traveler. So those are all things that encompass all the various different parts of our lives. So I think to that extent, it, it is pervasive in the sense that it's, it's touching us in all the different ways, even if not all the time in, in every place. Yeah, I suppose when I think about those different categories that you mentioned, they, they seem to fall into some obvious buckets, like you've got the law enforcement and forensic detection uses of it just to match faces with faces on a criminal database or something like that and then gating and access is probably the big practical application of this in terms of accessing your phone or accessing a a physical space you know i've heard of people using it and i think it was china originally but i've seen there was a swedish case actually i think last year or maybe two years ago about using it for recording um students attending school and then i guess things like the use of it to, uh, for matching faces on things like Facebook. I don't know what, what I would think of those as being because some kind of just leisure or entertainment based use or something. I, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the actual it's, it might be useful for categorizing or organizing your own photo albums or something. I, you know, when I access my, I, my photos on my Mac, it's nice to be able to find photos of particular people. So it's kind of convenience there, but I, um, that's sort of, I'm not sure exactly how to, to categorize that kind of use of it. But yes, yeah, so anyway, it, it seems to be across many domains of our lives now. Um, this is something I wanted to touch upon with you, and we discussed it a little bit via email in advance, which is a lot of people are very fixated on the uses of and applications of it in China. And you, know, you can read these Business Insider articles with 18 uses of facial recognition technology in in China and they all seem a bit dystopian and futuristic and concerning is there a uh, I don't know what your views are on the, on the kind of uses in China but is there a danger that we're kind of using China as some kind of bogeyman in this debate around facial recognition is it taking attention away from what's happening with the technology 
in our own back doors? I, th- I think that's a fair question. Um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of um, detailed personal knowledge other than, of course, the media and the reporting on it, the same as that you've mentioned in terms of how it's being used there. And certainly the appearance of that is is that it's being used without necessarily a lot of restrictions or, or concerns or cautions in sort of, you know, just anywhere that it's practically possible. Um, and, and, you know, we see everything from talking about like if you're jaywalking across the street in China, by the time you get to the other side, they've already identified you and, and subtracted the fine from your bank account or whatever, all the way to um, students you know, being identified for attendance. And, and um, even one article I read said something about like, you know, toilet paper dispensers and public restrooms were tied to facial recognition to, to be able to access that. And I, you know, some of this, you just sort of have to wonder if, some of it's just the media highlighting some extreme cases, um, but but clearly it's something that's being used in in many ways in China. So one of my um, comments or thoughts, though, is that the technology doesn't create the society there. In other words, people are are sometimes saying we shouldn't be using facial recognition. Sorry, we shouldn't be using facial recognition technology because it's going to sort of turn us into this dystopian state like China. And my point to that is China was a, you know, arguably a dystopian state before facial recognition, and we weren't suddenly turning into them then. Um, we have fundamentally different values, a fundamentally different system of government. And if we're going to start compromising that on a, on a slope to dystopian life, I don't think it's the technology that's going to send us there, nor is, prevent, you know, nor is banning the technology going to prevent that. In other words, that is a bigger concern an issue than just saying, because this exists, we're suddenly going to turn into China. We didn't want to turn into China before, presumably, and and presumably still don't. And so adhering to what it is that we want our society to be and what freedoms we want to protect and what values we hold seems to be the better baseline for that conversation to me. And then say, if we use a technology we put these protections around our rights so that the rights aren't compromised by the technology, just like we do any other feature or function of government action. When we say, you know, you have to have a search warrant or you have to have probable cause or you have to have these other things because the ability of government to take those actions exists. And yet we restrict the government's ability by saying fundamentally we want to protect these rights and that means they have to have these precautions and security. So um, I know that there are people, Evan being being one of them, who disagree with me a little bit on that in the sense of, of feeling that the technology kind of drives us inexorably in that direction. And I understand that argument and I, it's certainly not specious. But I also think that by focusing on the technology, we can lose sight of what it is we were trying to fundamentally protect and just banning facial recognition is also not going to protect us from some of those same slippery slope concerns about location tracking or um, abuses of of government authority in terms of its ability to uh, locate people or understand their patterns of behavior, things like that, because there are other technologies that provide that same information. And so just banning a particular technology will not be sufficient. 
So that's kind of a little bit of a soapbox, but that's kind of my feelings on the the argument about China is if we just sort of say, don't use it because it'll turn us into China. I, I think that's a greatly oversimplified and non-sufficient way of looking at it uh, in terms of what our, what those underlying concerns are that that argument is meant to represent. Yeah, no, I think this is actually a bit of a theme or a lesson that emerges in a number of the conversations I've had recently, just an episode I did with Chelsea Barabbas about AI decision-making tools in the criminal justice system. You know, one of the key points there was that the way in which these tools get used is also, is a function of the institutional culture and ideology, not just what the technology enables. Although, yeah, I can I can see it's, it's a bit of a nuanced position that I think that you have to adopt, which is that as philosophers of technology would say that the technology gives you new affordances, new possibilities for action and may have a kind of not strong determinism built into it, but a, it certainly makes certain outcomes more likely. But then that also does have to interact with the local culture to a significant extent. So it's not it's not that technology has its own kind of independent agency in this respect. Um, right. Yeah, it's, it's, we're kind of touching upon issues uh, with the problems with the technology. I just do, and we'll go into these in more detail as we go along here. But I did want to maybe just briefly say something or give some voice to maybe the case in favor of facial recognition technology. I mean, there are benefits and conveniences to it. As I said at the outset, I I, I do use facial recognition technology on my iPhone. It I do find it reasonably convenient, although much less convenient when I'm trying to read my shopping list at the moment when I'm wearing a face mask. But I mean, there there are some practical conveniences to it. And I, there is presumably some kind of case that can be made for it. I mean, what do you think is the strongest argument in favor of it? Uh, so, so the use of biometrics generally, I think, ha- has a strong argument for it, because overall, it it is in fact more accurate and we'll get in, I know we're going to talk about bias and accuracy for facial recognition technology specifically in a minute, but um, as the thing to keep in mind is that you have to compare to what other options actually are. In other words, not to some perfect idealistic state that is, that doesn't exist, but what were we doing before? What are the options of what we could do now? And we know passwords are awful, that they're flawed. Uh, that we don't use them properly, that people aren't going to use unique ones for different accounts, that they're going to use very simplified bad ones, that they're going to reuse them. And we know that they're going to be breached. We know that companies don't tend to store them well. That is, they may store them in clear text, not encrypted. They may store them together with other account information. And that means a breach is that much more harmful and can be exploited at scale because you have this whole list of of passwords and data associated with people. So um, the existing systems we have are very flawed to begin with. And the the human systems, the non-digital systems also have a great deal of weaknesses. You made the point earlier that, that people, one of the things we do well as people is identify, and that is both true and not true. It is very true in the sense that in a very brief look, a very brief microsecond of, of time, we can actually make a, a sort of imprint and enough to know if we've seen a person before, or maybe to slot them into a, a categorization of, you know, this is somebody I've seen before at work, or this is someone I've seen before in my community. Um, but we're actually really bad at it to do it 
in the sense of what we're using some of these techniques for, which is to sit and compare a person to their photo while they're standing there or try to recognize them against a list we've been given uh, or things like that. And we know that the actual data supports the fact that even the best among us as humans um, are not are not great at that. Uh, there is a very small sort of less than 1% who can do it really, really well. Um, but there's no way to train it or learn it. They just happen to have that skill and it is a very small number of people. So, so this is the environment that we're operating in and biometrics largely are more reliable, are more accurate and are more protected in the sense of the way that they create the matching and the databases and the templates is less exploitable at scale or very easily by people who can breach those systems. That is not to say they can't be breached or can't be exploited, but they sort of are harder to do, harder to use that information. So I think that's a lot of why, I'm sorry, that was sort of a long answer, but I think that's a lot of why it's convenient or why we use it is because it does have benefits to us, especially on the on the security side. Um, it is also frictionless in a sense. Um, fingerprints, palm prints, iris scans, involve a sort of direct interaction with the person. They sort of have to directly touch something or face the camera for the iris or something. Facial recognition is much more passive, and that is both one of the conveniences of it and one of the great concerns for it, uh, is that it can be operated at a distance. It can be operated without the person's knowledge, which can, of course, be very concerning. Um, but it does also, if it is with knowledge and implemented well, it can be very convenient for some of the examples I gave earlier, which is like checking in at a conference or picking up a previously reserved rental car or service or checking into something um, without having to wait in lines or show ID or do other things. And those are things that many people have have demonstrated they enjoy having access to. Like you and I have said, we, we've used it on our phone because it is in fact easy. Um, and we both notice the added friction back in now that because of wearing masks, it doesn't work as quickly and easily. And we have to go back to putting in uh, perhaps the, the password on the screen or whatever other um, feature we use. And we notice that little extra step is there now that, that maybe we never did before we had the option to use facial recognition. So it, it's convenient and people like convenient and it's pretty reliable and accurate for these kinds of day-to-day -day uses to where my phone opens. I haven't, I haven't had it open for anybody else and it always opens for me. So I get that level of confidence and reliability on it um, that make me sort of appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, an important point as well that you, we have to compare these things relative to what was there before relative to the status quo um in relation to accuracy though it is accurate or more accurate or sorry let, let me rephrase that it is relatively accurate or more accurate than a lot of systems that we previously used but there are i think a lot of concerns about it and there are issues around bias so what are the inaccuracies that have been documented and that seem to worry people about this technology so there are uh, very definitely concerns about accuracy and, and well-justified and well-founded ones based on studies and things that have been done. And um, I, I will say that the accuracy of many systems is getting much better. And in the U.S., of course, we have a government agency, uh, NIST, that tests these systems. It, it's a voluntary test. The company has to submit the product for testing, um, and then NIST tests it. But the ones that are sort of at the top of the results on that 
actually show very reliable, very accurate returns across demographics, across gender, across race. Um, but they tested over 100 systems and, you know, it was maybe the top 10 or 15 that had 99 point something levels of accuracy across all of those groups evenly that didn't show distinctions for bias um, uh, uh, in terms of not being as accurate for women, not being as accurate for people of color, not being as accurate for uh, non-Caucasian faces, generally non-Western European American white faces. So um, the fact that there are so many systems out there that don't have those high levels of accuracy is very concerning because obviously many of those might be the less expensive systems or, um, you know, just available in, in other cases. And they are, in fact, demonstrating that they don't work well for, for certain groups of people. And that's not OK. You know, there's there's no system that should be implemented that both by its function and then by where it's used and how it's used, um, uh, it, it discriminates against any particular section of the population of people. So there are a lot of concerns about that and, you know, can get into the dis details of why that is, whether it's training data, whether it's the model itself, whatever. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but it's there. It's proven the biases are real. Um, and, and they are very concerning in terms of how concerning they are. Um, that's sometimes directly tied to what the use of it is. So like any other kind of data and the risks associated with that, it's based on the context of how it's used. If we're starting to talk about facial recognition being used in criminal justice systems, the standards should be incredibly high to the point where maybe it just shouldn't be used at all, at least in its current incarnations, because the risks are so high. The impact on an individual's outcome, their freedom, their sentencing, their bail, all those kinds of things, those are, those are such impactful, life-changing, personal risks that, that we should have only the highest standards for anything that we use in that process. If we're talking about, you know, mistagging someone on social media, there's some risk to that. There, there can be some bad outcomes there, but it's certainly a lot lower. If we're talking about, you know, making recommendations to somebody on a, you know, another book or movie they should read, that's very low risk. It can be a little offensive or it can be, un, you know, annoying, but it's certainly very low risk. So some of that has to go into the conversations about about accuracy as well. There are times when accuracy is critical. There are times when accuracy might just need to be at a sufficient level. Um, the level that of accuracy that unlocks your iPhone, assuming it, that, that you have an iPhone, is um, quite sufficient for that. The, the likelihood of someone else being able to open your phone is, is very low and the technologies to prevent spoofing of me, like holding a picture of you up or something like that is very low, but they are still not at the level where you would, I would want them at least if they were being used in any kind of, um, you know, investigative or law enforcement process. Yeah. I mean, let, let's let me talk about that in a bit of detail or a bit, bit more because I guess the thing, the, the headline or the common bit of wisdom that I've heard is that these systems are less reliable on African-American and Asian faces and better with Caucasian faces. And there's this famous study of the, you know, the Amazon recognition system, which 
mistakenly identified as 28 members of Congress or something like that as as uh, matching with faces on a criminal database. You might remember the details better than I do. And you obviously have companies involved in its use amongst law enforcement agencies where employees within those companies have protested or objected to those uses. Like what's happening there? What are the risks or concerns about that in particular that we, that we should be sensitive to? Um, yeah, I think those are all great examples of, of some of the applications and concerns that those, that those systems raise. Um, I think without wanting to go into all of the details about, for example, the recognition, um, study that was, that was done that highlighted the members of Congress. I mean, I think that was a great project or or, (laughs) I I was going to say stunt. I didn't want to sound pejorative about it because I, I I don't mean that in in a pejorative way at all. It, It was a great attention getting process yeah. it, like it, it, it is a bit of a valuable. stunt in a sense like it's to, it to attract attention stunt. to it yeah okay and and but but that was useful that was useful to attract people's attention and make them take it personally because that's sometimes what's missing is if it's not affecting us personally we tend to minimize the risks or the impact so when all of a sudden you as a member of congress get told hey you know you popped up as a 85 percent chance match with this known criminal um, you, you tend to get a little more invested in whether that technology is is really what it's all it's cracked up to be. So so kudos for that. Um, but it, it is a complex technology, and that means that it can be used badly. It can be implemented poorly. People cannot be trained well on it. It cannot be used according to the way it's designed. Um, and that's not you know that's not an excuse. That's not trying to blame it on on the people who are using it. It's just to say that to say that you're going to use a facial recognition system for any purpose, uh, security or convenience or, or to deliver goods and services or whatever means there's an accompanying obligation to do it well, to have the appropriate training, to have the appropriate settings, to have the appropriate standards. And that is part of what makes the threshold question in any of these cases, which should be, do you actually need a facial recognition system to do whatever this is? Like, is that really the best way to do this? Or is that just, you know, sort of a, we can do it. And so we're going to try to, but in reality, we're, we're using a sledgehammer for attack because it's not the appropriate tool. It doesn't deliver, uh, you know, the, the, the problem we're solving is, is not worthy of, of that kind of system and the resources that it would take to do it well, um, and in many cases, I think that's what it comes down to, um, that either either people don't, people, organizations, agencies don't have the time and resources, understanding and commitment to actually use it effectively. And using it badly is is definitely worse than not using it at all in most cases. Uh, in this uh, forthcoming paper with, with Evan, you talk about... Um the problems of differentially distributed risk and the erosion of trust that might be associated with particularly imperfect or somewhat inaccurate manifestations of this technology. Uh, maybe you could explain those concepts. Are they kind of straightforward enough or is there something more to them? And uh, yeah, how sensitive to them should we be? Um, obviously, we think they're pretty important since we, were, we included them in the paper and, and worth considering. Um, 
I think that risk is part of what I was just mentioning, which is to say that if if the risks are unfairly distributed socially, then there are added concerns about it. So if I never feel more at risk because I am using a facial recognition system, whether it's tagging a photo or accessing my phone or walking into a government building or or traveling through a checkpoint at an airport, I'm never going to sort of internalize why this is such a, a unfair system broadly. And and that's going to be true of a lot of people, which is exactly why I was saying that anything that makes this more personalized for people makes it better, makes us have a better conversation about it because um, it, it has to be fair and it has to be, that risk needs to be shared equally. And that's the large point of what some of those gender and racial studies have demonstrated is that that risk isn't borne equally. Um, and so the added literal inconvenience all the way up through um, impact on a person of actually being detained falsely or wrongly, as well as just the added stress of knowing that that risk is higher and that you face more likelihood of, of that sort of engagement with these systems um, means that they need to be better considered before they're put in place, because that shouldn't be an acceptable outcome when we put a, a technology in place that by definition ahead of time, we know it's going to impact different people differently um, in their experience of it. And, and as far as trust, um, I think that we're seeing in the world today, the problems when people lose trust in their social institutions, generally both, both government institutions and social structures, uh, whatever those might be. And anything that, increases that lack of trust or that feeling of not being able to rely on the infrastructure around us as part of our, our daily lives is a huge detriment, literally, um, mentally and emotionally, and, and erodes that sort of feeling of, of community and shared um, experience that, that we have. And it ties into a lot of, again, much bigger issues than just facial recognition or any particular technology. It ties into our whole sense of, of, you know, humanity and community and social interactions and how much faith we have in each other. And in that, when, when that trust is being hurt or harmed because the technology itself isn't reliable, that makes the agency feel less reliable. That makes the process and the civil rights protections feel less reliable, and then that makes all of us act very differently. Yeah, and but I suppose then it, it kind of goes back to the point that you made earlier but with respect to the accuracy of these things, which is that the problems of differentially distributed risk and the erosion of trust are at least partly a function of whether these tools are better than the existing systems or whether they just compound the flaws in the existing systems, right? Uh, absolutely. And I mean, part of our goal at the Future Privacy Forum is always to try to present the most accurate and um, nuanced understanding of these technologies away from the sort of, you know, media headline clickbaity type interpretations, because it's easy to get caught up in the frenzy of that. 
And so if there are places where these are, in fact, more reliable, are better, are a safer way to do things, um, we would like to make that clear and highlight those as well as highlight where the risks are, because people with a better understanding of why systems are used or how they work are going to be able to better rely on them or trust them and to question when they're abused and not used well. Um, but, but when things get spun into, you know, a sort of everything is bad or all of these things are, are awful, um, it becomes very difficult then to, to get much done because maybe we don't have any other good alternatives either, or maybe those are flawed as well, but we inappropriately rely on them. We still have people that use, you know, the same password for all their different accounts and it's ABCDEF or something like that despite, you know, a decade of, of instruction and public education to try to get people not to do that. So if we can make that better and have people be able to trust that the better really is better in some ways, um, that would be a good thing. Yeah, and I guess also oh, the, the point you're making there about having a more nuanced understanding of it, I suppose, highlights how important perception is in this whole debate too, how the technology is perceived to be used and what its impact, differential or otherwise, on different communities is perceived to be. Because I, I guess you could make the argument, and I don't know if this is true, but that existing systems of, let's say, eyewitness detection or ex other traditional law enforcement forensic methods are also, let's say, racially biased. And I don't know if anyone's done this kind of quantitative analysis, but these facial recognition technologies, it could turn out they are less racially biased than those pre-existing systems, but they are still biased against uh, minority populations <laughs> in some way. Like, so, but but yeah, the no, bias is less. But because it, the perception it, and attention is on the technology, it, it still erodes the trust in the system. Right, right. It, 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 you know, to give the shorthand vernacular, it's complicated. Um, the existing systems are awful. Like our existing criminal justice processes in the U.S. at least are, are very flawed. We know they're flawed. We over-police in communities of color. Um, the sentencing guidelines are unfair. The actual behavior of juries and judges and, and other participants are, are clearly demonstrate um, bias. And all of that data is what's being used to inform many of the systems that are trying to automate that, not just facial recognition systems, but all kinds of systems that are being automated um, and that's that's awful because it will perpetuate the bias. Now, yes, I think that there is a role for technology in helping us to identify that, to show that, to prove that bias and maybe find ways to work around it or to lessen it or to minimize that. I, there are a lot of people working on that that concept and, and systems like that AI systems and automated, uh, you know, algorithmically based machine learning systems and things like that that um, are, are specifically trying to identify where our existing processes already encompass bias and how can we make that more obvious? How can we understand it better and then maybe push back against it by using some of these systems? So I think that there is opportunity for that. I think that the very real fear and very justified fear of communities or uh, people that that are on the receiving end of the bias in the systems as they exist now 
is, is that it won't make it better. It will just either perpetuate it or make it worse and maybe make it harder to see because it's happening in a, you know, in a computer program now instead of directly in front of them with another person. Uh, and I think that, you know, based on the past, that's a very justified fear. So I think it's going to take a lot of um, transparency and openness and effort and constant questioning and constant evaluation by the people who think that this kind of technology generally, AI in general, and, and facial recognition maybe as a tool of that or as a piece of that can make things better are going to have a lot to do to prove that and and to make those systems seem trustworthy. I, I do think it can be done. Like I do think at least in, in very specific applications, it can be used in those ways. Um, but it's there's a high bar of performance and, and um, exposure and self-auditing and evaluation that needs to go along with that to make that um, credible in the future. Yeah, I mean, maybe we we could just kind of fantasize for a moment or imagine for a moment that we this technology is basically perfect and flawless in the way it operates. Is there still a problem or an objection to it? I mean, you you mentioned that biometrics are more accurate in general than other kinds of systems we use for identification and verification as a as a rule of thumb. But is there something just particularly problematic about using the face? as a biometric tool it's just so unique and uniquely valuable to us much more so than other kinds of biometric tools what's your, what's your view um, on that yeah so i think that you just asked two questions one is is if it worked perfectly is it still risky and the other is is there something special about it being about face so in answer to the first question i think the answer is clearly yes because again the technology itself uh doesn't doesn't make or break the the value the 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 harms to people so if we automate the things that we're doing badly now so if we over police in a community now and and we over police in the future but we do it by camera using facial recognition we're still over policing and it's still a problem and the technology has enabled that maybe at greater scale maybe at greater detail even if the technology is accurate that's not a desirable outcome in our in our process, in the way that we incorporate the protections around things. Right now, if a lineup is used where a witness is called in and has to identify a person out of you know five or six or however many is required to be in the lineup, and and the witness or the victim or whoever identifies, you know, person number three is my attacker. All of that process and information has to be released to the defense. That's part of discovery. And this is in the U.S. process I'm speaking of now. I apologize. I'm not 100% familiar with, with other countries, but I think similar protections apply um, that, that you have to know that that happened and that that was part of what led the police to investigate that person more deeply is that they were identified by someone. And that has to be released to the defense so that they can um, press back against it. They can say, you know, it wasn't a fair lineup or the person identifying them was pressured or something like that, whatever they, they want, uh, think is appropriate. Right now in the U.S. system, if facial recognition is used to identify a person and leads the police to investigate them more deeply, that does not have to be released to defense. They don't, they will never know that a facial recognition system played a part 
in that identification, which led to greater investigative depths or, or attention. And so that's a protection that's built into the process that we need to be careful of if we're using a technology to do something that's essentially the same thing we were doing physically, why wouldn't it have the same protection? Why wouldn't we still say that has to be released to the defense? And that's one of the key points that's being, um, you know, approached in legislative or, or, you know, legal communities now is to give, afford it that same level of protection and that same level of disclosure. Um, so that's not about whether the technology is accurate or not. That's about how it's used and implemented. So of course there are still risks, even if it works perfectly. The second question was, you know, is there something unique to our faces? Um, and this is something I think that honestly, you know, every person that you ask would probably give some variation of a different answer on this as to how comfortable they are with feeling like their face is the thing being used to tag them. There, there are people who feel turning a face into identifier is an entirely dehumanizing process to, to template it with an algorithm and store it and then use that for comparison. Um, and just feel like everything about that is inappropriate in terms of self and humanity and things like that. There are other people who are not as disturbed by that. Like they may still be disturbed about the outcomes of it, that they don't want it used badly or unfairly, but they, they don't have that sense of, you know, my face versus my fingerprint versus my signature versus my, um, you know, location data or just versus my personal existence and other people's witness to that. All of those things are me. All of those things reflect on my sense of self, the face no more so than anything else. So um, I don't know that there's really a right answer to that. There are clearly a strong percentage of people who feel very, very sensitive about that as, as part of their identity. And that needs to be taken into consideration in any policies or procedures that are put in place. But I don't know that there's really a, a clear or objective answer to that. At least I don't have one. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a fair point. I think it, it probably does vary to some extent. And, uh, you know, DNA seems pretty integral in some sense as well to me as a, as a biometric tool. Uh, your co-author, Evan Selinger, has been writing a lot or part of a a campaign or an organized effort to essentially ban facial recognition technology along with others that he's he's written about this with what's your feeling upon the the campaign to to ban the technology i guess you know speaking personally one fear i would have is that technology bans in general are pretty difficult i think to enforce and sustain obviously there has been some successes for this campaign to ban it and various cities and municipalities in the US have banned its use by particular agencies, but they'll seem kind of limited jurisdictionally and limited in scope and application. Is there any merit to this campaign to ban it? I think there's certainly merit to the campaign, because if nothing else, it brings so much attention to the point and gets people to focus on what the risks are, even if their ultimate solution is not necessarily to ban it or to ban it all in every case or things like that. So, you know, I, I entirely respect uh, Evan and, and uh, Woody um, Herzog, who's one of the other leading voices that, that they've written and worked together quite a bit um, as proponents of bands. Um, I don't I don't personally necessarily 
advocate for that. I'm, I'm also not opposed to those happening in, in, you know, democratic processes where a city or a state or whoever votes and decides that that's the solution they want to implement. Um, it's entirely valid as a choice to make. I would mostly refer back to some of the things that I said earlier, which is to say that my fear is, is just that when we focus on the technology itself as the problem, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that the harms that it could have caused can still be caused in other ways. And I don't want us to think that because we banned the technology in this, this particular technology in this particular area, that now we're safe um, and that those risks don't still exist. So if I don't want public surveillance, there's a lot of ways to have public surveillance, not just tied to facial recognition. And in fact, we don't have much live public surveillance based on facial recognition right now. Um, there are a lot of cameras in a lot of places, but this idea of live streaming video that encompasses a facial recognition system, that's not really a thing almost anywhere. It's used it's used reactively. It's used after the fact to analyze um, video and uh, you know, tape in, in cases where, you know, something's happened, whether that's been a, a protest and you're trying to identify protesters or whether it's somebody breaking into a store, um, you know, it's, it's applied to the images after the fact. And that doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying that's, you know, that, that, that makes it harmless. Uh, it's just another one of those aspects of nuance of saying, let's understand how it's being used and let's understand what the risks are. So if we don't want public surveillance, I think get most of that information and most of that location information off of a person's cell phone or cell tower tracking um, information from their provider. And, you know, there've been a number in the U.S., there've been a number of Supreme Court cases addressing what level of protection needs to apply to that data. And I think those are critically important questions because we all, for, for purposes of generalization here, and, and I think very accurately, I can say the vast majority of people carry a device with them the vast majority of the time. And so the data from that is going to be useful and definitive in many, many cases to provide exactly the same information about where they were and what they did. Now, you can leave it at home when you go to a protest or a march. That's some, a choice you know, people can clearly make. Um, but we, you know, we don't see many people making that choice. And that's one of the few cases where they're sort of like um, preemptive planning. We still use it to drive to park at, you know, the subway that we took to the protest or to park nearby and left it in the car or even if we left it at home. But we have it with us most of the time. That location data is is very detailed over time, over distance, reveals huge amounts of behavioral and personal information that can be exploited in, in many, many ways, including for investigative purposes. And so bans that, that focus on a particular technology can take away some of the attention, again, from those underlying protections that we are, is what's really at risk and what we're really trying to protect. So that's, um, sorry, a little bit of a divergence there, but that that's really my concern about bans is, um, is that we get a false sense of security if they pass um, versus actually still continuing to be vigilant about whatever our, the harms were and making sure they don't get caused in some other way. Yeah, I mean, that's, that seems like a good point to make. They're not a panacea and that the problems can remain in other forms or have other technological manifestations as well. Last question then, and th that this is 
a question that's probably hard to answer in, in a short space of time. But you know, the the CEO of Clearview AI, you mentioned the company earlier on, Juan Tontat. I apologize for the pronunciation of his name. Has said that the choice is not between no facial recognition and bad facial recognition, but between bad facial recognition and good facial recognition. Now, that's obviously a self-serving argument to some extent, <laughs> but I guess the idea here is that maybe we can regulate the technology in a way that makes sure we have good facial recognition. Do you think that's right? Do you think we can do that? Um, <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to go on record as saying I'm in agreement with <laughs> the CEO of Clearview. But um, but yes, I do think that regulating technology has a very important role, because even if we can ban it entirely or somehow completely eliminate facial recognition as a as a tool, it isn't going to happen overnight. And in the interim, even if even if that is the goal and even if we're going to get to that goal, uh, there's a lot of harm and risk between now and then. And so anything that provides boundaries and guidelines and protections now is valuable to me. And given that I think the ultimate likelihood of complete bans in all cases is very, very low, uh, yes, I would like to see thoughtful regulation of how it can be used, when it can be used. Uh, you know, there's the difference of verification versus identification, as we've talked about before. Maybe verification has less protections needed than identification does. Maybe uses by government and law enforcement agencies need very specific and different limitations than commercial uses. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, consent and notice and awareness standards need to be very different in different use cases and contexts. All of those things can be done via legislation. All of those protections can be put in place and give give a standard of practice, a standard of performance, and then legal protections for things in a place where facial recognition exists and is being used. So it's not just about is the facial recognition good facial recognition, by which I assume he means accurate. It is also, as we've discussed you know, several times now, how it's used, what policies are in place around it, and what protections are there for the control of, of the harms that it can cause and for the protection of the people who are being subject to it. Okay, I think that's probably a good place to leave it for now. Um, there's obviously a lot of detail there to be worked out, but we don't have the time or opportunity to go into all the detail on this. But I'd like to thank you for joining me for this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate the chance to to talk through some of those um, very complicated and, and tricky ideas. Yeah, and anyone listening to this, I think should also check out the, the work that the FPF are doing. I think it's a very kind of useful, detailed, non-hyperbolic uh, policy work and well, well worth checking out. Thanks very much, John. Appreciate it.